Well, this morning, it's a. Uh, I've been very much awaiting this morning for uh, about a month or so. Um, the the gentleman that'll be coming to preach the word to us today, I've known by many titles, from coach to pastor, but more importantly, a dear brother in Christ. Uh, Doug Loafman is coming this morning, and he will uh, be uh, opening God's word for us today. Brother Doug. Well, it's a joy to be here uh, because anytime we have opportunity to speak about the Lord, to talk about the things of God, it's the, uh, the greatest thing we can do. It's the, the best way to spend time. It's, it's the most uh, fearful thing in one respect and yet the most um, wonderful thing that we can do. So whatever the Lord has to say... Uh, to us, I pray that through through His Word and through whatever uh, word He gives me, that He would have our attention today, and that we would focus on the Lord Christ, and that there would be benefit and profit in our lives. We are going to be in the Book of John, the last chapter, chapter twenty-one, verses fifteen through nineteen. And as we just read in John 13, we see Peter's uh, intention, his, his affirmation of love and devotion, and yet we know the reality that's coming in his denial, and Jesus tells him that. And even after that, Peter still doesn't really believe that. He still confesses that no, no matter what. So I want to look at at Peter, but then what does Jesus say to each one of us uh, in the same vein that he spoke to Peter? So in John 21, uh, verses 15 through 19, it, it's, it is one of the most striking passages of Scripture to me. Uh, it's one that penetrates uh, beyond just a knowledge or more than just a, a teaching of Jesus that, that all of us should receive, but it's a penetrating, personal, pointed exchange. And Jesus really has to have this same exchange with each one of us. This is not only to Peter. I think it's something that each one of us has to be willing to, to accept, to to receive and to deal with. And I think for a long time in my life, growing up in a Christian home, never been a time that I was out of church, never been a time that I wasn't a part of everything that you could be in, um, even including um, pastorates. And, and, and yet this question is one that I think in my own life was one that I wanted to avoid even knowing the truth of it and to some degree acknowledging it in the reality, in the, in the depths of my being, I wanted to ignore this question. And it was this question about probably somewhere between, I don't know, seven to 10 years ago, the Lord just seemed to bring this to me in a way that I could not ignore it. I could not put it aside, and I knew that ultimately, unless I answered this question honestly, I would miss 
Whatever Jesus had to say to me, whatever he wanted to do with me, I had to be willing to answer it honestly. Even if it meant, in a sense, um, embarrassment, if I couldn't answer this question properly, even at, especially after all that I had been in all of my life and in church life. But answering this question is the most important thing that every individual on the face of the earth throughout all time, this is the question that we have to deal with. And if we're not willing to, then what we're saying is, I want to think of myself the way I think of myself. I want to live my life by my standard, by my evaluation, by my assessment, and I will not really let Jesus have the right to expose me because I am not willing to be exposed to, my, to myself and especially to other people. So I would say to me, this topic is, is really, it's, it's what is a Christian? Or what is the, the birthmark? What is that one single identifying characteristic of a Christian? What are we? So let's read 15 through through 19. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands And another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So why does Jesus ask Peter this question? And why does he ask it three times? Well, I'm sure all of us have have heard, uh, you know, an explanation being that Peter denied him three times. This is now three opportunities for him to to reaffirm, to reconfirm his love. It's a, it's a means perhaps of, of restoration and of, and of giving Peter that same number of opportunities to confess love rather than the denial. But we do know the denial and this surely had to come to, to, uh, to Peter's mind. You go back to Matthew 16, 16. Uh, he had made this bold profession. He, you know, Jesus said, well, who, do, who do, do people say that I am? Who do others say that I am? And they gave the, the answers. And then he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's the one that spoke up. They said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, well, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father who is in heaven. So here is the reality Peter knows the reality. Peter believes the reality. And it was, had been revealed to him by God himself. Of course, he turns right around when Jesus is talking about his death and, 
coming. He said, you know, forbid it, Lord, that'll never happen. And he says, get behind me, Satan. So you have God's revelation of truth and Peter affirming that and then turning right around and having a man's viewpoint of no, you cannot die. And, and Jesus has to, to chastise him for that. But here's this, this truth that he understands. He knows, he confesses. Well, then in Matthew 26, we go on to see the further events. When again, making this bold statement of his love, he says, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, surely I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So here again, we look, go back. I'm sure all of this conversation between the two of them on the shore is taking Peter back. It's reminding him of all that's transpired. And then, of course, we go further in Matthew 26 to the actual denials. Peter denies him three times and he doesn't deny Jesus before authorities, before threats, before guards. He denies Jesus in front of a little servant girl and common people, not people that have any threat, that, that pose any threat to him. And yet his fear of association with Jesus was such that even the, 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 the smallest, um, you know, accu- well, not accusation, but statement of, of his affiliation with Jesus caused him to deny and turn away. You know, it's interesting too in this passage that Jesus calls him Simon. He doesn't call him Peter. Again, he's taking him back to the man, the natural man, the, the person that you've been all these years. He's revealing Peter's heart to himself. He is showing him that even in all of his good intentions and all of his zeal, that in the flesh, he was incapable of doing anything. So these are reminders as he takes him back to, to look at himself Whether it be the good, the bad, it's the man, Simon Peter. God can do no work in a soul until there is a proper understanding of oneself. You know, the first of the Beatitudes says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they are poverty stricken. Blessed are those who are humble and broken before God because until that point, God can do nothing with you. And there is an order in the Beatitudes. That one is placed first for a reason. Because until that occurs, none of the rest can ever take place in a person's life. You know, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 57, 15, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, both of those speak to the fact that there's really only, there are only two places that God dwells. He dwells in the high and holy place and in the heart of him who was humble and contrite in spirit and that one who trembles at the word of God. Recognizing who I truly am. Look at Isaiah in chapter six. How did he respond to the vision? I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. I will be in a sense those words are saying I am going to be disintegrated before this God because of the holiness, and it's one of the only two times in the Bible that holy is mentioned three times, this repetition of three things. Many times you see like, behold, behold, two words, but when there are three in Hebrew, 
My understanding is that means it's of utmost importance to only one of two times that we see this happen where it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so this recognition of where I stand before God, and until there is this poverty in spirit, God can do nothing with us. He has to bring Peter to a recognition of where he truly stands. And none of us, none of us will progress in the spiritual life, will enter into the spiritual life apart from this. We must know our need for God. We must know our guilt before God. We must know our impotence to do anything for ourselves regarding our spiritual state. We must know that we, each one of us, are born into the the family of Adam. Paul is very clear about that in Romans. All of us are born into sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. And we are by nature children of wrath. That means condemnation. God's condemnation, his punishment for sin. Each one of us are born into the family of Adam and Adam failed as our head and we all inherit the inheritance of Adam and Eve, which is death. We are a flesh and we cannot come to God apart from the acting of God in us. This is what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. He said, you must be born again. As good as you are, Nicodemus, as perfect as you are according to the law, as much as you desire to follow and honor and obey God, you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. This is an act of God in your life. It's not you, Nicodemus. Your natural man is impotent to do anything. And then in John 6, Jesus says this. He says, the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life and gives peace. Paul tells us in Ephesians, speaking of salvation, he says, and that not of yourselves, lest any man should boast, it's the gift of God. Peter, you are hopeless, helpless, empty, and you have to be exposed. And you have to be willing to accept that exposure. And you have to know that you have nothing to offer. You can do nothing. You can do nothing on your own. Apart from Christ, we're helpless. We're hopeless. We're doomed to condemnation. We're all lawbreakers. We're guilty. And we must stand before God in judgment. Each one of us has a court date with the God of the universe It's one of the most striking pictures in Revelation where it talks about those who rebel and hate God would pray that the mountains would fall on them and crush them rather than have to face God one-on-one. If that doesn't terrify us, if that doesn't bring a recognition of what it's going to be like to stand before the God of the universe who has no beginning, no end, is eternal. He knows everything about everything. He knows there is no atom in all of the universe that he is not aware of and guides controls. That God, each one of us, has an appointment with him. He is absolutely, perfectly holy. He is unapproachable light, as we're told in Timothy. And none of us can argue with him, can stand before him, have anything to say 
our mouths will be completely shut because he is the judge of all the earth. So Jesus is revealing, revealing to Peter the truth of his natural heart. And even though Peter had truly loved Jesus, had fully purposed to follow him to death, he wasn't saying those things flippantly. He meant it. He meant those things. But in his natural man, he loved himself more than he loved Jesus. He loved self, self-preservation more than he loved Jesus. And we all, by nature, we do the same. All of us have come to this point we have to come to this point of true self-knowledge in relation to God. We're not born believers. We don't grow into to believers by being in a, in a family, a Christian family, or, or by attending church, or by any other external influence or affiliation in our lives. Each person must give an account of his or her soul solely based on the ground of union with Christ through conversion by the spirit from the natural man to the spiritual man. And this is a work of God only and not of man. And until Jesus shows us that, we can live the most upright life that exists and still be condemned before a holy God. So we each one must be confronted with this question and be willing to answer it. Am I converted or am I not? Do I know Christ or am I trusting in something additional to or other than Christ alone? And only the spirit of God by the truth of God found in the word of God can reveal this to us. John 3.36 It's kind of striking to me that John 3.16, the most quoted and known and clung to verse in the Bible, which is absolutely true. But you go to the very last verse of that chapter and it paints, it tells us the reality. God does love the world. He died for the world. We can have life in him. But here is the place that every single individual in the world finds themselves. John 6, I mean 336 says, he who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's the question of the ages. This is it. Are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? You and I, each one of us are in one of these two categories. Either we're in Christ or we're out. There is no in between. There is no hope on that day of changing sides when you die you die as you stood in the flesh and you either enter into glory or you are condemned before God there are only two possibilities if we're outside of Christ this question that Jesus asked Peter three times really doesn't need any consideration on our part because if we're outside of Christ we cannot love him we can admire him, we can follow his teachings, we can see his great example, but we cannot love someone that we don't know. And what is worse yet, someone that doesn't know us. Look at what Matthew 7 tells us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven 
And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Many people are hoping, are hoping in who they are. Again, their family, church affiliations, what they've done, what they haven't done. They're hoping in many things, but if we're hoping in anything other than Christ, he says, I don't know you. Get, get out. I don't know you. Terrifying, terrifying words. But this message is dealt more with by Jesus than the message of heaven. It's the message of the reality of condemnation, of sin, of the need for repentance, of coming to Christ alone for my salvation. So if we're outside of Christ, we may be religious, but we may not be regenerate. May God reveal to me and to each one of us where we stand before him because until he does until i recognize it until i fall before christ alone there is no hope for salvation but there is hope in ephesians paul says this he says at that time prior you were without christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the hope. That is the only hope. But God has to show us that need. So a Christian then is one who has been converted Converted. I love that word because it expresses the reality of the change. It's not just saved, which is a biblical term, but there are so many words for that. And those of you who have done Behold Your God, there was one chapter where there are like 14 different terms that express what salvation is. Oh, it's beautiful to study all the different facets of what salvation is. It's not just this blanket, I got saved, but What does it tell me about the work of Christ? What does it tell me about my position? What does it tell me about God? So if we have been converted from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son, the old life has passed away. New things have come. We are now a new creature. We're God's workmanship created for good works in Christ. And we live by faith in the son of God and to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the transformation that only God can bring about, but is an absolute necessity without it. We don't know Christ. Christianity is not about the benefits. Christianity is not getting out of hell and just gaining heaven. So I can walk streets of gold and have a mansion on a hilltop. It's not about just having peace and contentment in this life or or having victory in all my circumstances or achieving my goals and having all my prayers answered according to my desires. Those who like to say, I declare, I declare in the name of Jesus, what right do I have to declare anything? I come to Christ, a beggar, and God has granted many things to us, but I cannot Declare simply because that's the way I want life to work out. 
Life is just life for all of us. And we are conquerors through Christ, but not according to human means or human thoughts or human perception of things. It doesn't mean that everything will always turn out as we want and that life will be pleasant. One of my favorite hymns, you could look it up by John Newton, author of Amazing Grace. I asked the Lord that I might grow. He said, oh God, I want to grow. I want to know you. And he said, what did God do? He beat me down. He showed me my sin. He ripped me apart. He took basically everything away from me so that I would know my only hope is in him. I cannot trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That is all we have. And the means that Christ does it in our lives may not be something we are pleased with. But do we trust him to do it? You know, look at Peter's life. What did Jesus tell him right here that was going to happen to him? He said, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself, you walked where you wished, you were in control of your life. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you don't wish to go. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And then when he spoke these things, he said, follow me. Oh, wow. Wait a minute. That doesn't sound too promising, too hopeful, too enjoyable. Do I really want to do that? Do I really want to follow you? So Christianity, this mark of the Christian, what is one, is summed up really in simply the phrase, love to Christ. Love to Christ. What was Jesus saying to Peter? Do you love me? Not do you love my doctrine? Not do you love the cause? Not do you even love the church? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter tells us this very thing. He brings it back at the end of his life in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 7. This is what he says regarding Jesus. Thinking back, I'm sure, about that encounter on the shore. He said, therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. And Paul, Paul concludes his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 16, verse 22, by saying, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. That word accursed, anathema, means that you are without hope of being redeemed. You're doomed for destruction. So he says, anyone who doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be doomed to perdition. A necessity, a must. Really, again, that birthmark, that identifying characteristic of the Christian. To be a Christian is simply to have Christ. I love what a friend of mine in Oklahoma said. He said, I don't care if heaven looks like the inside of a shoebox. As long as Jesus is there, that's all I need. I love that description. To be a Christian is to be united with Christ. And as as we mentioned, Ephesians, 27 times in Ephesians... Paul uses that phrase, in Christ. That's the only way we have anything. All of those wonderful benefits in chapter 1 of Ephesians, everything is only in Christ. Having and knowing Christ is Christianity. You know, so when you hear about like the the Christian side of Jerusalem or, or the Christian this or that, or evangelical Christians, you know, those are terms that identify the the general religion of an area 
But there are many inside that general underneath that umbrella that have no relationship, no knowledge, no affiliation or union with Christ. What is eternal life? Jesus tells us in John 17, in praying to the Father for his disciples, he said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, that they know, not intellectually, experientially, that we know Christ, because that's what Christianity boils down to. Look back in verse 7 of chapter 21. I love Peter's reaction here as he always is. That guy who wants to do something. Walk on the water. Build booths, you know, up on the Mount of Transfigure. I mean, this guy is the guy who wants to demonstrate, experience, know. And that's why we can't fault him for these things, I think. But look how he reacted in verse 7. It says, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, it's the Lord on the shore. Now, Peter, Simon Peter, uh, when he heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. That's his desire to be with Jesus. I can't wait till we row to shore. I've got to plunge in. I've got to get to him ASAP. I have to get to Jesus. At this point, Peter isn't concerned about the doctrine, the miracles, establishing the church, or he's not even apparently concerned about any chastisement. All he wants is to be with Jesus. He loved him. He needed him. And I'm sure that in the days since his denial, every single day, that denial haunted his thoughts. How could I have followed him for three years, made such bold professions, and I denied him such a coward? And of course, he went out and wept bitterly after he had done that. It was Jesus that they had followed. It was Jesus that they believed in. He was all in all. He was everything. He was what this whole thing was about. You know, we're we're told that, we're shown that in the two shortest parables in the New Testament In Matthew 13, the value, the value of finding Jesus. He's the treasure hidden in the field. He's the pearl of great price. And in both cases, for joy, the person sold everything they had and purchased that one thing. That's the value. That is what Christ is. Without Christ, there is no Christianity. Christ is our life, as Colossians 3 tells us. In Philippians 3, Paul tells us the objective of his life. He said that he counts all things as rubbish for the sake of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ for whom I've suffered the loss of everything. Everything I once was, everything I once had, it's gone. It's it's rubbish. It's trash compared to the value of Christ. So Jesus' question and his call to Peter. You know, as Jesus had brought Peter to an awareness of himself, of his affirmations, of his failures, of his natural man, of all that he wanted to do, he points Peter to the objective and only source in his life for overcoming himself and for service. And so he says, do you love me? 
this is the question. Not do you want to be a Christian, as our culture might say, not that you want a reputation or a certain kind of life. Do you want me at all costs? As I mentioned earlier, there are many who might admire, try to imitate Jesus, but they see him ultimately maybe as as only a good teacher, an exemplary model such as Confucius or Buddha or any other teacher, philosopher type person. We can't have Jesus that way. So Jesus asks us this same question, do you love me? Who is Jesus to me? And do I really love him? Here's what Thomas Vincent said. And again, those of you that have done Behold Your God, you can go to page 60 or somewhere along in there and see this quote. It really struck me that when I read it the first time several years ago. But Thomas Vincent said this, uh, 15th century pastor. He said, the life of Christianity consists very much in our love to Christ. Without love to Christ, we are as much without spiritual life as a carcass is without natural life when the soul has fled from it. Faith without love to Christ is a dead faith. And a Christian without love to Christ is a dead Christian, dead in sins and trespasses. Without love to Christ, we may have the name of Christians, but we are holy without the nature. We may have the form of godliness, but we are holy without the power. Give me thy love is the language of Christ to his disciples. Spurgeon followed along with that and said this, If you cannot say Jesus is precious to me, I do not care to what church you belong or what creed you're ready to die for. You do not know the truth of God unless the person of Christ is dear to you. It is Christ himself that is the attraction. It's Christ That is our salvation. It's all we have to cling to. And there are people, and you can read about some of these wonderful saints of old. Samuel Rutherford, one of of the best examples. A man who lost everything. His family, six of his seven children died prior to his death. He eventually was removed from the church in Scotland. Was spent his remaining days in prison. And that's where the glory of Christ was revealed to Samuel Rutherford. And you can read his letters. And that's what exudes from those is not just God sustaining him, but the love, the communion, the fellowship, the joy of having Christ there with him. That is Christianity. And that's all we ultimately have. When you and I die, there is no one going with us. There is no one holding our hands, spiritually speaking. If we have not Christ, we have nothing. And we enter into God's judgment on our own accord. So this is what Jesus wanted Peter to recognize. He he knew what it was that was going to empower Peter for the day of Pentecost. Just weeks after his denial, he's preaching and 3,000 people are saved. He is bold in Jerusalem in front of those same authorities that killed Jesus. How did that change take place? the power of the Holy Spirit, the recognition of the truth, and now his attachment to Christ. Following upon those questions, he realizes this is my only source. That's what empowered him. That's what allowed him to overcome the prejudice to go and preach to Gentiles. When he saw the vision, he said, I can't eat that. That's dirty, that's dirty. And Jesus said, what I've made clean, 
is clean. Go preach to the Gentiles. I'm sending my word to the Gentiles through you. It was that love for Christ, that obedience to Christ. It's allowed what allowed him to, to go to jail, knowing that probably the next day he's going to be executed. And we don't really see any fear. Of course, he was liberated that night, but, but he is brought before authorities. He's beaten. What allowed him to do that after he denied Jesus so easily earlier? What allowed him to be a pastor, an elder, to raise up churches? And I'm sure in every church there was discord, strife, difficulty, people who may be difficult to deal with. And yet it was the love of Christ and for Christ that gave him that ability. And finally, the resolve to die a martyr's death. And he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Lord. Crucify me another way. They turned him upside down and crucified him that way. You don't live that kind of life unless you're propelled by something within you that drives you, that supports you. And it was the love of Christ and his recognition of keeping my eyes set on my Savior. That's the only thing that kept him true and allowed him to fulfill the life that God had called him to and to be a true believer. So a Christianity without love to Christ is just dead. It's religion. Maybe a life dedicated to, to being honorable, exemplary, respected, but it's only religion, man-made, self-glorified, and ultimately, it's an idol. Our own religion, our own person can be an idol because Jesus has to reveal to us what is inside of us and where do you really place your allegiance and I am the only thing that's worthy and I'm the only thing that is sufficient. So what do we do? Well, we answer that question honestly. Do I love Jesus? And what does the evidence suggest in my life that I do? Am I willing to honestly say that? To acknowledge that? We can't be afraid to acknowledge what God already knows about us. Proverbs 21, 1 Corinthians 4 both tell us that, that God knows and waves the motives of our hearts. Let him ask you that question unreservedly. He will only ask us that question and probe into our lives and expose us to ourselves in order to do good, in order to heal. It's like a surgeon cutting into a body, hurting the body, but for the sake of healing eventually and restoring to health. He does it in order that you may be made ready for the work that he wants to do through you. John 15, we're all familiar with what Jesus said in relation to our connection to him, that he's the vine, we're the branches, and apart from him, we can do nothing. So it is Christ, it is Jesus himself that is Christianity. Well, how do we love him? Well, only the spirit of God truly can do this in, do this in us. God has given his spirit to every believer in order to make us like himself, to conform us to his image. Philippians 2 tells us that it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So God is at work and only God can transform us through his spirit. But the verse right preceding that says that we are to work out our salvation 
with fear and trembling. Salvation is of God alone, but the sanctification process, that process of working toward the outflowing of the Christian life is our responsibility as well. We have a responsibility in this sanctification process. Only God does it, but he doesn't just zap us and say, okay, now you're holy, now you're, you're, you're sanctified, now you're ready. It is the spirit who is in us to will and to work. It is our job to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Knowing Christ again, going back to John 17, do I want to know him or do I just want to be saved and eventually go to heaven Do I want to know the God of all the universe? Is he worth my effort? So the work of salvation, God alone, sanctification, motivated and produced by the spirit, but not without our pursuit of it. By the means he has made available to us, being primarily scripture, scripture. If we knew the history, if you've ever read any of the history of the men who have died to preserve this book. We cannot then deny the value of this book and God's providence in keeping it for us. This is the bread of life that we have to feed on. And Christ, the bread of life, is the focus of the whole thing. Are we making use of the means that God has given us through scripture, through prayer, Not just throwing up a prayer now and then of this or that, or particularly of the the intercessory prayers, which we all go almost immediately to, I think, when when we pray, the needs. But just God-focused prayer. Using scripture as a guide to prayer. Wanting to know God. Wanting to glorify God. Wanting to be brought into the presence of God through prayer. Are we growing in these areas? Scripture reading and study, developing of a prayer life, the ordinances that God has given us and recognizing what baptism and what the the Lord's Supper are. And they are means, again, by which he displays his grace and, and reminds us we are a forgetful people. We have to be reminded over and over. What about fellowship? Fellowship with one another? But in our case, something that we found, and I've already quoted, guys, we find great, great fellowship with saints of old, reading about the men, reading the experiences that that men and women of the past have had with God that that are like that iron sharpening iron that that draw you to Christ, that point you to him, that 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 sometimes chastise, sometimes you, you realize what a pathetic being you are when you read them. But also that encouragement because they themselves know they were pathetic. And and you see the beauty of of what it looks like, what it might look like to live unto God. Many of those things I said, if you've done behold your God, you've read many of these people. But that, but this pursuit of God through all these different means God has given us. I like what Spurgeon had to say about reading. He said, the man who never reads will never be read and the man who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. Am I taking advantage 
of the things God has given in order that I might know God, fall deeper in love with Jesus, have a greater understanding of himself, a greater understanding of myself, and put me in the proper perspective as to how to live my life. Am I using the means? I forgot what Lucy had. My wife had something the other day uh, that, that someone had posted about I don't know, spectacular things or something that happened, how God speaks to those. And God does. But his primary means are those things that he has given us through scripture, through prayer, those things that are not reliant upon some external, big, grandiose thing happening. And if that's what we're looking for, that's what the people in Jesus' day wanted. They wanted signs. They wanted miracles. And he said, unless you see those things, you won't believe. Believe because it's the truth. This is the truth of God. And again, going back to John 17, he said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's how we get sanctified. Taking advantage of the means. So what are we doing to know Christ more? And how diligent am I in that pursuit? Where does it fit into my daily schedule? The value that I place on this pursuit shows the value of my salvation to me and the value of Christ. Do we really have any idea? No, we don't. Of what we have been rescued from and what we've been brought into. You know, Paul said, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, the depth. You know, we need to be mining these riches as the greatest treasure that we have on earth. And Job shows us this in Job 28. He says, man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore, meaning like gold, silver. In the darkness and the shadow of death, the depths of the earth, they are mining, literally mining for precious metals and stones. And Job says, men go to this extent, to this extreme. They overturn the roots of the mountains. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value. We put so much emphasis on the things of this life, the acquiring of things, the building up of things. And he gives such a great example here of mining for the treasures of this world. When are we mining for the treasure of that unfathomable and inexhaustible riches of God? This is eternal life, again, that they know you and the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God, this is life, and it will produce in us then that love of God, which has been shed abroad in the hearts that Romans tells us. It will produce in us the greater love for God, and it will be the only thing then that will truly carry us through this life and into the next. Christ alone. Not a set of beliefs, not a philosophy, not another human being. It's Christ alone. How well do we know the Lord? How clear is the image of Christ to me? Am I satisfied with how well I know him? Am I satisfied with how much I love him? Spurgeon, again, 
This is so powerful. He says, my, speaking to himself, he says, my soul never be satisfied with a shadowy Christ. I cannot know Christ with another man's brains. I cannot love him with another man's heart. I cannot see him with another man's eyes. I am so afraid of living in a secondhand religion. Lord, save us from having borrowed communion. No, I must know him myself. Oh God, let me not be deceived in this. I must know him on my own account. You and God, you and Jesus, Peter and Jesus, that individual conversation is one you and I have to have with Christ. Do I want a shadowy Christ? Am I satisfied with what I already have? Do I see the beauty, the depth of the riches of Christ? We're blind in the flesh and until we put ourselves before God, until we are willing to be exposed, until we're willing to let this word expose us, the spirit of God expose us and bring us to a recognition We can live a fulfilled life in the flesh and die either as an empty pocketed Christian or as one condemned to hell. Can I speak like this as Spurgeon did? Really all I have to do is look at my life and I know the answer to these questions. I know by looking at how I orient my day and my time and, and the way I do things, it's pretty obvious But may the Spirit point us even more clearly and expose us because Jesus desires to do that, to expose us, but then to confirm us, to redirect us, to conform us to his image. It's all for the good. Jesus never does anything, chastens, disciplines, corrects, lays the rod on our back, except that it is for our benefit and putting us more into fellowship with him. So this was the subject of the last recorded interchange that we have with Jesus and Peter. Of all the the conversations, this is the one, as far as we know, that he was left with. Do you love me and follow me? Christ is Christianity. Love to Christ is the object of the Christian's life. So this is the best definition, I think, of what a Christian is. It's it's that really that identifying mark of the Christian love to Christ. Do I love him? Page 316 of your hymnal, I was going to just finish with one verse, but I think we'll read all three. If you want to look at it, you could look at it now or later. Page 316, written by Paul Gerhardt. German theologian, hymn writer, back again in the 1600s. Oh, sacred head now wounded. A recognition of what Jesus has done. The beauty of it, the wonder of it, the fascination of it, and the call upon his life of it. Oh God, if you had rescued, if you have rescued me, What should be my thought and attitude and life toward you, the one who rescued me? He says, O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown, 
How pale thou art with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. How does that visage languor, languish, which once was bright as morn, speaking of his face? What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor, assist me with thy grace. He knows he can do nothing apart from the grace of God. But this last one is the one I wanted to share with us. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this, thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, ever outlive my love to thee. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so ignorant, really, of, of you, and I'm thankful that we really don't have any conception of the depths of God because that would put you more in the likeness of man. You are completely other from us and I praise you for that and I pray that we would glory in that, that we would welcome that, we would enjoy the fact that you are beyond anything that we could imagine and yet you have chosen to create a people, to call a people, to redeem individuals who were born into rebellion, who were born into sin, who were born under condemnation. God, give us grace. We don't see these things of our own right and our own understanding. Unless you show us, we will continue to be ignorant. But thank you that you have chosen to make us yours, teach us your truth, give us grace to have a hunger and a thirst after the things of God. And Lord, I pray for an assurance that as we come before you, that you will meet us and you will fellowship with us and it will become sweet to us to want to be with you, to know your love toward us and to express our love to you. We praise you, God. We have no sufficient, apt words to speak to you as you are. But thank you for, for calling us to yourself. And we pray that, that you would be honored in our lives. And all of this for the sake of Christ. Amen.